I would invite you now to turn in your Bibles to the book of Revelation, chapter 21. So we'll be looking at this second to last chapter of the Bible. If you would please give your attention to the reading of the holy, authoritative, inerrant Word of God. Revelation, chapter 21. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be His people. And God Himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. And He who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also, he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son." But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Then came one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues and spoke to me saying, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And he carried me away in the Spirit to a great high mountain, and he showed me the holy city Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God, its radiance like a most rare jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. It had great high wall with twelve gates and at the gates twelve angels and on the gates the names of the twelve tribes of the sons of Israel were inscribed. On the east three gates, on the north three gates, on the south three gates, and on the west three gates. And on the wall of the city had twelve foundations and on them were the twelve names of the twelve apostles of the Lamb. And the one who spoke with me had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city and its gates and walls. The city lies four square, its length the same as its width. He measured the city with his rod, 12,000 stadia. Its length and width and height are equal. He also measured its wall, 144 cubits by human measurement, which is also an angel's measurement. The wall was built of jasper, while the city was pure gold, clear as glass. 
The foundations of the wall of the city were adorned with every kind of jewel. The first was jasper, the second sapphire, the third agate, the fourth emerald, the fifth onyx, the sixth carnelian, the seventh chrysolite, the eighth beryl, the ninth topaz, the tenth chrysophase, the eleventh jacinth, the twelfth amethyst. And the twelve gates were twelve pearls, each of the gates made of a single pearl. And the street of the city was pure gold, transparent as glass. And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the, Lord, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it, and its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and honor of the nations, but nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we ask that you would teach us from your word. We ask, O Lord, that you would remind us of the glories that you have prepared for us. We ask, Lord, that you would show us your glory, even in the midst of this, your word. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Have you ever come to the end, a long-anticipated end, to a journey? Especially a journey that is a, a difficult one. There's a story from ancient Greece of an army, a Greek mercenary army that was fighting in the midst of Persia, hundreds and hundreds, thousands of miles from home. And they were hired by a Persian prince to carry his claim to the throne to its consummation. But there was one small difficulty. As the army was fighting, the prince was assassinated. And this army, this Greek army that fought in tight formation, could not be defeated, but it was hundreds of miles from home. And the historian describes the journey of this army over mountains and through deserts and across valleys as they fought their way back to get to the sea so that they could get back home. They faced all sorts of difficulties. This was a battle-hardened group of men. And the story comes to its crescendo as they, as they come over a hill and they gaze out and they see the great deep blue water of the sea. And these crack troops, these battle-hardened, scarred men turned into schoolchildren. They began crying out, the sea, the sea. They tossed aside their armor and they ran toward it to drink from it, to feel its coolness, to know that they were home. Maybe you've had a similar experience if you've had a difficult journey back home. 
For us, we had one of these, our very, not our very first Christmas, but, but one of them. We had, at that time, only two small children. And we went on a seemingly short journey from Cleveland to Buffalo, a journey that should have been about a three-hour tour. But instead, we went right in the midst of a blizzard. And so we're driving off Lake Erie in a blizzard at about 15 miles an hour with an infant and a very young toddler crying, sniffling, everyone bundled up in winter clothes. Everyone is a bit short. The kids are crying and yelling. I'm saying, why did we ever decide to do this? But eventually we reached home. And when we reached home, then it was time to show off the kids. It was time to be with family. It was a time of joy. Well, I tell you these stories because that is a bit what the Christian life is like. We face struggles, don't we? We have illness. We have broken relationships. We have hardship. We have financial troubles. We have worries and doubts. But you see, the Bible knows this, and God knows this, and He has given to us passages like Revelation 21 to show us that there is a home that we are going to. There is a time when all of this strife and struggle will be behind. It will bother us no more. We will see the Lord in all His glory, and He will be all our glory. There's a reason why the book of Revelation was written. I told you the main theme, of course, is God wins. But in that, in God winning, we see the end that God has prepared for us. And so what I would like us to see briefly this evening are three things from this text. First, I would like us to see the promise that is fulfilled. The promise of God fulfilled. And then the provision of beauty that He gives to us. A promise that is fulfilled and a provision of beauty. And then finally, we will see that all the glory of eternity is the presence of the King. A promise, a provision, and the presence of the King. Let's begin then by looking at the first eight verses and see a promise that God has fulfilled. Now the Bible is full of promises, isn't it? We can go through the Psalms, through the Old Testament, in the Gospels, in Paul's letters, and we can find promises of God to us that we can claim and we can cling to. Perhaps you've done this for encouragement. Perhaps some of them are verses you put up on a refrigerator or a wall or a mirror to remind yourself that God is with you. This is true. There's great hope in the promise. But you see, Revelation 21 reminds us that the promise is not just something out there. It is something that we will experience. And in Revelation 21, we see the promise is fulfilled. The first part of this promise we see fulfilled in verse 1. There is a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and earth had passed away and the sea was no more. The first promise we understand as being fulfilled is that there will be in eternity, in glory, no more enemies. Stop and think about that for a minute. 
No one else to stand in way of the gospel. No one to harass or attack you. No one to cut you down. No one to make you think less of yourself. No one to lie to you. No one to belittle you for believing the truth. You see, the old things will have passed away. All of the old order. And we saw this in Revelation 20. As Satan and the beast and the false prophet were all swept away. All of the enemies of God and of His people are gone. John puts it in a very interesting way that I think sometimes may be hard to understand. He says at the end of verse 1 that the sea was no more. And we wonder what does this look like? Does that mean there's going to be just dirt everywhere and no water? But we have to understand that the sea is a place of chaos and rebellion. We've seen that throughout the book of Revelation, haven't we? It is a place where the beast rises up from. It is a place in Daniel where the four beasts come from. It is a place that was feared by the Israelites. And the sea is a place where we cannot naturally thrive, right? All that water, and how much of it can you drink? None of it. You must have provisions. You have to get through the journey on the sea. Because there is no natural way to provide for yourself. There are no more enemies. And that is because all has been made new. We see a new heaven and a new earth, the holy city coming down out from heaven. But it is not just brand new. There is a sense in which it is, if I might coin a phrase, or excuse me, borrow a phrase, it is new and improved. It is a new Jerusalem. There is a connection to the old. It is called Jerusalem. It is not something that is created completely out of thin air, as it were. It has a connection to the existence, the creation now. It is a new creation. Just as in the resurrection, there is a connection between our new spiritual bodies glorified bodies, and our current earthly bodies. There is a connection here because you see, just as the entirety of the universe was connected to the fall through Adam, all of the universe is connected to redemption and recreation through the Lord Jesus Christ. All of physical laws will work as they were meant to, as they ought to. There'll be no more aging. There'll be no more hunger or want. No more thirst. No more tiredness. No more sin. It will be a new world recreated for the glory of God. All that was wrong will be made right. One of my favorite verses in the Bible is Revelation 21.4. Do you see what's so wonderful about it? Here we are speaking of the new creation, of a new Jerusalem, of a holy city, of the recreation of all of the universe. And God stops in the midst of it and He says, you won't cry again. You won't have any more pain. You won't have any more sorrow. He's speaking to individuals here. He's not just redeeming a universe 
beloved. He's fixing all that is wrong and broken with you and with me. This is indeed a new creation. All that was wrong is made right. And as a result, we then begin to possess the inheritance that God has prepared for us. All of this is true. Look at verse 5. It's as if God is saying to us, I'm making all things new. I'm going to wipe away all tears. And you better write that down. Remind yourself. Take a note. Because it's true. This that I say is trustworthy and true. I am making all things new. And as so often is the case with God, as He says it, it happens. Because in verse 5 He says, I am making all things new. And then in verse 6, in the twinkling of an eye, He says, it is done. It is finished. I have accomplished it because I am the Alpha and the Omega. The same One who promised all the way back in chapter 1, that He would be with His people. Do you remember that? In verse 8, Jesus declared, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. Here He is at the end saying, I am the same One who has promised. And I have brought every single one to fruition. Now notice what promises have been fulfilled here in verses 6 and 7. He says, to the thirsty I will give from the spring of water of life without payment. In verse 7 he says, the one who conquers will have this heritage that I will be his God and he will be my son. The Lord knows who we are. We're a needy people, aren't we? We just spent a good bit of time this evening thinking about how we could be praying for each other. And we have needs. We have needs for illness, sickness, jobs, relationships, salvation for loved ones. And God says, I know that you have needs, but you will not thirst anymore. The promise that is fulfilled is to the one who is needy, I will provide and meet that need. You see, heaven is not just better than how we are now. The new earth is not just an improvement upon our current situation. It is an entirely new paradigm for us. It is a place where we have no needs because we are in the presence of Christ. There's another promise too, because not only are we needy, we are a people who are involved in conflict. Because this world is a great conflict, not just in our own private spheres, but it is a great conflict between the Lord Jesus Christ and His seed and Satan and His seed. And now we here see that that conflict is over. The one who conquers will have this heritage, this inheritance. The one who overcomes, again, that same set of promises we saw back in chapter 1, now are fulfilled. To this one, I will be His God. He will be my son. God always keeps his promises. We may have to wait for them, but he always keeps them. He not only has a promise that is fulfilled, but he also 
gives us a provision of beauty. We see this here in verses 9 through 21 in this wonderful description of the great city of God, the new Jerusalem. Now, it's interesting that this description of this wonderful city in all eternity with great beauty and holiness begins a bit odd. It begins with an angel who we are reminded had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues. Now you would think, why is John bringing that reminder in here? Isn't this glorious happy time? Why are we talking about plagues and judgments and bowls of wrath? And I think it's because it's a reminder to us that this provision of the new Jerusalem is a part of God's eternal purpose. It is not something that God thought up at the last minute. It is not something that God conjured up thinking it would be a good idea. The whole reason for the conflict, the whole reason for the warfare of the cross, the whole reason for judgment is that the Lord might consummate the glory of His people and Himself. It's the purpose for all that we see before us. God is fashioning His people in a glorious way. The purpose of God is to vanquish evil and to bring the bride to the Lord Jesus Christ. And what a bride she is. You know, there's nothing quite like a wedding day, is there? If you want to see men blubber like babies, put them in a wedding and watch them as the bride comes in. I think one of us at least here is going to cry in months to come. And that's because you see the bride come down and husbands, was your wife ever more beautiful than on that day? There's just something about it. The the beauty and the radiance of the dress and the smile and the hair and everything. Now, that doesn't mean you don't love your wife more and more each day, but... There's just something about the sheer spectacle of it. And that's what's described for us here in Revelation 21. Remember that this glory of this wedding feast, this marriage goes on forever. But it's the entrance here that's described that is breathtaking. Think of how the bride is described. This is the people of God, the church. That group of squabbling misfits. That group of sinners. That group of people in need of grace. That group of loudmouths. That group of short-tempered people. That group of people who ignore each other. That group that is undeserving of anything. And you know who I'm talking about. You and me. How are we described in glory? As, look at verse 11. Having the glory of God. What a description of the church. Having the glory of God, its radiance like a most rare jewel. You can almost hear John stumbling over his words. How do I describe this? It was, oh, was it like gold? Well, yes, but transparent, brilliant gold. Was it like jewels? Yeah, but okay, let me tell you of all kinds of jewels. It's like all of them all at once. That's how glorious it is. And it's 
It's a place where you are safe. Look at it. It has a great high wall and it has 12 gates. And the gates have angels. And the gates have names of the tribes of Israel and the apostles of Jesus. The Old Testament and the New Testament. The continuity of the people of God. What a glorious church. What a huge company of church. Because look at the size of the city. In verse 16, we see that it lies four square, its length the same as its width. You math whizzes will know that this is being described as a cube. Perfect in its dimensions. 12,000 stadia long. Now, I'll save you the conversion. 1,400 miles on a side. And on another side. And high. 1,400 miles. A side is half the length of our nation. And this is a city. It is meant to put you in awe that it is huge. Its walls are 144 cubits. 200 feet thick these walls are. A place of safety and of greatness. The next time that you are tempted to be depressed because of the state of the church, and you are tempted to think of the church as this small, tiny, ragtag, wimpy little band that can't do anything. 1,400 miles long, wide, and high. You see, the Bible tells us that Jesus Christ has the preeminence in everything. And that means that the people of God are a multitude beyond our imagining. I think this is true not just because of all of the conversions that we have seen throughout the centuries, all of the work of evangelism, but I think we even see it in the work of those who die in infancy. And I pray to the Lord that even those whose lives have been cut short by the cruelty of abortion will stand before their Savior. And their blood will be avenged. And they will be a part of a great multitude that sings the praises of God. Think about the sheer beauty of the city. There's one little vignette Ladies, the gate, these are not gates made of pearl. So you might think about that, pearls stacked up in kind of an arch. This is a gate made of a pearl. One pearl big enough to be a gate. Can you imagine that? That's the beauty of the city of God. But in all of that, it really isn't important at all. Because the great beauty of that city is found here in verses 22 and following. Not just in the beauty of the city, but in the presence of the king. And we see that there is no temple in the city. What? No place for worship? We see there is no sun, no moon. What? Can you imagine the world without those great bodies of light? There is none of these things because in the city of God, Jesus dominates 
everything. One of my favorite stories, I think I've told it before, but it's worth retelling, is Charles Spurgeon was asked what he would do and who he would speak to in glory. Which theologians, which Bible characters, what would he do? And he said, well, I don't think I'll have a chance to do that because I'll be too busy. Too busy? What do you mean? He said, well, I thought perhaps for about the first 10,000 years, I would spend contemplating my Lord's fingernails. And then for about the next 10,000, I might move to his hand. And then I might contemplate his arm. And so on. And so on. The idea being, Jesus is the focus of everything. Don't think of heaven as a place. Don't think of eternity as a place where you will go and get to play all the best games or eat all the best food or hear all the best music or have all the best conversation because you know what? None of that means anything next to Jesus. You will spend eternity in the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ. Nothing like it. Nothing even to be imagined like it. Jesus dominates everything. There is no need for any temple because there is no need for any more sacrifice. And Jesus is everywhere. And worship is everywhere. There is no need for a sun because it is daytime all of the time because of the radiance of Christ. Jesus is at the center of all of this. The glory of God gives light to the city and the lamp of that glory is the Lamb. All of the nations are blessed by Him. They walk in His glory. Jesus is the center of eternity. The presence of the King is something to behold. But lastly, let me leave you with this as a challenge. The presence of the King is also something that transforms. Grace transforms us. Look at verse 27. Nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. It seems an odd way to end this glorious story. There'll be nothing rotten there. And the reason is, is because Jesus has transformed the entirety of the universe, including every child of His. There will be nothing wrong. All will be as it was meant to be. Here the Bible comes full circle. Do you know what is wrong with the world? Jesus is recreating it. Do you know what is wrong in your life? Jesus has made provision for it. This is the great ending of the great story. Just as Genesis began in chapters 1, 2, and 3 with a creation, a marriage, and a fall, Revelation ends in chapters 20, 21, and 22 with redemption for the fall, a marriage, and a recreation. Their book ends. All will be made new. Are you on that journey? Do you know the Lord Jesus Christ? Are you seeking to be more and more like Him every single day? If you are, 
Beloved, this is your inheritance. This is your future. This is all the glory that is the Lamb. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for this great picture of all eternity that you have provided to us. We ask, O oh Lord, that you would that you would recreate us, O oh Lord. That you would fashion us into the image of our Savior. That we long to see Him. We long to be free from sin, to be free from sorrow, to be free from pain, O oh Lord. But we trust you. We trust you in the waiting time for the promise. And we ask, Lord, O oh Lord Jesus, come quickly. We ask all of this in the name of our magnificent Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, and all God's people said, Amen.